Hello and welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm Logan Finney. Last week on Friday's episode of Idaho Reports, we featured a segment about the environmental cleanup in the Bunker Hill Superfund site, which stretches all the way from the Montana border in Shoshone County, past the Washington border in Kootenai County. And to dig a little deeper into the history and current aspects of North Idaho Silver Valley, this week on the podcast, I'm joined by our Idaho Public Television executive producer, Bill Manny. We put together a new documentary that premiered this weekend on Idaho Experience, Remembering the Sunshine Mine Disaster. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Hi, Logan. Uh, so to get things started for the listeners here, I'm going to play a two-minute clip that is the introduction to your documentary. I always have to remember, it wasn't just my family. It was 91. And their hearts are just as broken as what mine was and my mom's. We're a family of seven, so thank you very much. People need to know that they were men with lives, and I don't want them just to be a name on the wall. You know, so that loss in 1972 was so great to so many people. And that's what we're trying to make the kids understand as part of the history here. It's the loss that we're dealing with. It's that loss. There wasn't anybody in the schools or that didn't know or, re or related to somebody that that happened to. So it touched everybody in the valley, that, that loss, you know. Or it was your my neighbor. I hunted with him. We went, he perished in the fire. This was a place of great change. And uh, tragedy, but out of the tragedy, the industry changed. And in that part of it, uh, I'm proud to be a part of that history of that change. What came out of the event in the industry as far as mining safety? then uh, all the miners are now subject to getting in out of the mine safely and going home to their families out of that. So it's not just, it's not just sunshine. Uh, it's not just the neighbors down the street, but it's all mines in America, all hard rock mining. Something good came out of something so tragic. That's some powerful stuff. Now, Bill, give us a brief idea of what you wanted to explore in this documentary. Well, uh, 2022 was the 50th anniversary of the Sunshine Mine Fire, as as we just found out there. Um, so 1972, 91 miners died. And I didn't know much about the incident or the Silver Valley, uh, but some of my colleagues suggested it would be a, a good topic for our history series. And I have to say, they were absolutely right. Um, there's so much, so much to this story that uh, uh, we were able to get to, and probably some that we weren't even able to get to. You not only have the, you know, the the fire itself in 1972, and the and the impact on the families and the communities and the other miners and the rescuers and the uh, responders but you had you know survivors who had amazing stories to tell and you had uh, you know this kind of lingering impact and trauma one of our sources talks about you know he just says you know it's the loss the loss and you think about 
91 families and, and the, the schools and the workplaces uh, that everybody was affected by this uh, disaster in the Silver Valley in 1972. And then what was really interesting was, you know, kind of what's happening there today. You, we talked a little bit about the environmental issues that have uh, been going on in the Silver Valley since the 70s and 80s, but you have um, the economy really struggling to to get back on its feet. We talk about how you know tourism and recreation has sort of came in to to not replace, obviously, but supplement uh, the economy of the Silver Valley. And then you know, I guess you could end the story with the fact that the Sunshine Mine's new owners are exploring and drilling with a plan to to reopen and to mine silver again within the next couple of years. Yeah, it's a fascinating area with so much history. And I was barely able to touch on a lot of things I wanted to touch on in eight, in eight minutes. And so I'm sure in your more than 30 minutes, there's a lot of stuff that you weren't <laughs> able to get to. Yeah. And, you know, I'm also thinking, you know, we talk about cumulative impact, right? This this community, there's all this history up until 1972, some of which we can probably touch on. But then you you had this amazing, incredible, uh, a profound uh, disaster with the fire in 1972. And then you had this environmental disaster that was visited upon the Silver Valley, you know, recognized and, and then acknowledged and started being cleaned up. And you had this economic disaster that struck the Silver Valley that they're still recovering from. And so I came away with, um, you know, just a real, a, a real, uh, I'm impressed with the way the people in that valley have survived, you know, what you can only talk about are multiple traumas and, you know, seem to be a pretty optimistic, resilient bunch of people. Yeah, I, I myself, I'm not from Kellogg or Wallace. I'm not from the Silver Valley, but I am from North Idaho. I'm from Sandpoint. And so I'm somewhat familiar with the mining history up there, having grown up there and kind of how the area's reputation has changed over time. And so I think it's really beneficial to hear from someone like you who's not familiar with the area, who's able to have that outsider's perspective and see things from the 30,000 foot level in contrast to, you know, the folks who've been up there in a long time. Sometimes you don't recognize the moment to moment decisions that make sense. And sometimes it takes an outsider to see the, the cumulative impact of everything. Yeah, well, I'm definitely an outsider. You know, I grew up in Oregon and and live in Boise, and 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 what I knew about the Silver Valley was, you know, driving by, and on 90 on the way to Montana, and just thinking that community had really been hit hard. And I'm sort of curious, Logan. You know, growing up, growing up in North Idaho, what did you know about uh, the Sunshine Mine fire? What did you know about kind of the the Silver Valley, just as a kid growing up there. Sure. Well, as a history nerd, the there's the more recent history of the transition that the Silver Valley has gone through, but then there's the old, old history of when that was like the Wild West days of mining camps where, you know, you had characters like uh, Big Bill Haywood of the Industrial Workers of the World being extradited from Colorado to Boise to be put on trial for the dynamite assassination of former Governor Frank Stunenberg, who'd 
declared martial law up there in the Silver Valley during um, some of the mining strikes. And, the, you know, you hear stories of unrest among the workers dynamiting, you know, buildings that were owned by the mining companies. And so that stuff is like the real flashy headline stuff more right. so than the, the 60s and 70s. Well, and you, I mean, to even the most casual Idahoan, you understand that, you know, what what happened around the turn of the century in union and mining relations i mean it it affected it affected the assassination of a former governor and the trial of the century and you know i mean that's that's sort of what you know i think a lot of us outsiders kind of know north idaho for you know all its kind of flaws you know flaws and and uh, and troubles and i think it was good for me to kind of experience the Silver Valley as a you know place where people really want to live, and that people you know still love that community despite all its difficulties because of you know because of the things we all love about our homes. And so, you know, it's kind of a cliche, I suppose. You know, you humanize. You, you everybody loves their hometown, but uh, I did really find I did really finally understand why people you know, love living in the Silver Valley and kind of wanted to stick it out despite, you know, all those things I consider traumas. You know, you asked me about uh, some of the things we wanted to talk about, and and I didn't mention, but I should, the fact that this 1972 Sunshine Mine disaster, the fire and the subsequent uh, revelations, really ended up changing uh, the way mines operate forever. The 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 way the way the fire happened really spotlighted a lot of problems with mining safety law and 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 regulation and in the 70s uh congress rewrote mining laws and as a result things are things are from everybody i can understand this everybody i talk to and it is not just kind of window dressing mining safety really did change and from everything to uh you know, dedicated rooms where miners can hunker down in case of emergency with with water and food and air, uh, but also the requirement that you have to carry a working respirator on your belt at all times, anytime you're in a mine, and that included us when we got a tour. And so, um, this, as as several people in our show say, this was a profound tragedy. But out of that came some really significant changes that probably probably resulted in many many more times 91 lives being saved since you know the 1970s absolutely yeah and our, my idaho report story focused on public policy when it comes to cleanup and you touch on that public policy when it comes to safety uh, but in the documentary you also did a really really good job of focusing on the people and the families you interviewed a lot of Longtime Shoshone County residents, folks who worked in the mine, folks who were part of the rescue efforts. What sort of place today does the Sunshine Disaster occupy in the community's memory up there? Well, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm no expert, but I, I guess I play one on TV now. Um, I am really profoundly uh, affected by the degree to which um, especially in Kellogg, that disaster affected people. And, um, 
you know, you hear that when you talk to those folks, you, you hear it in their voices. You can certainly see it in the stories they tell in our show. Um, you know, people talking about their lost fathers and uncles and neighbors. Uh, I think that's, that's the most extraordinary thing really that I came away with was how deeply, how deeply affected uh, the entire community was. And uh, I think one of the one of the overarching themes of the show was how the people who went through that in 1972 and and who are now really eager to talk about it and make sure those experiences and memories aren't forgotten and uh, they're actually doing organized programs with the high schools to try to uh, make sure the lessons and the impact uh, you know and the sacrifices aren't forgotten so. I think I think there's been enough time now, 50 years later, that mo much of the, you know, much of the openness of that wound is sort of healed over and people are are not just willing to talk about, but willing to be really deliberate about how they remain, how they keep that memory and that experience relevant to future generations. And it's. Yes, it's it's important to the history, but you know, as I think as Don Caparelli said in in one of our interviews, you know, if you're a young miner or a young logger going to work and you know that story and you know that history and you know the impact that those kind of disasters can have on a family and a community, you're more likely to be safe and you're more likely to keep, you know, those kind of annoying reminders about safety and about following the rules you know top of mind instead of just being a cocky young guy who thinks he's indestructible yeah that's an interesting perspective yeah so the the one thing that i wondered you know we did not really we did not delve deeply into the environmental um you know all the environmental impacts um i i know people talk about how the what is very green hillsides and green valley bottom today is you know beautiful and it's enticing you know retirees to to come to the silver valley but there was a time when the acidification from the smokestacks killed a lot of the of the growth right and i don't really understand that story but i know you talked about it a little bit how how significant was that and what kind of lasting or or uh, what do we know today about the land and about the environment from that experience sure well there's the the primary effects environmental effects in the old days when you were mining you would just discharge your tailings into the Coeur river and they'd get washed away and you'd call it good right and that started to become an issue very quickly to the point where a section of the river, I believe, got blocked up around the flats near the old Cataldo mission. And they actually dredged the river at some at a few points because just the tailings had piled up at so in such large quantities. Um, when it comes to the acidification and the death of all the vegetation on the hillsides, that more has to do with the Bunker Hill smelter. Um, a really key aspect of the success of the Silver Valley in its mining heyday was the fact that the Bunker Hill Company built a smelter there in the valley. So you didn't have to ship your ore off to Butte or to Spokane or to some port to have it processed and turned into useful metal. All the mines there concentrated in the valley could give their ore to the Bunker Hill smelter and have it processed right there in the valley 
cut out the middleman and it was a real economic success. Um, so that was letting out fumes into the air. They knew it was an issue with inversion areas and even, you know, raised the smokestacks at one point and even that didn't really address it. That just let out sulfur oxide into the valley and acidified the hillsides, which was wow. a really terrible thing. Um, and then in the early 70s, I want to say 72 or 73, I know Andy Helke says it in the Idaho Reports package, but there was a fire in the baghouse, which is one of their big filtration systems. Um, and so with that fire, it burned a bunch of the filters and um, the Bunker Hill Company, which then was owned by some folks out of state, decided to keep running the smelter, even though the filter system wasn't working, which was illegal at the time and they knew it was wrong. and Actually, an Outdoor Idaho episode called Silver Valley Rising gets into right, this right. in much more detail. How long did it run like that? Uh, the smelter closed. Well, it it took, I believe, the better part of a year to fix okay. the baghouse. But by by that point, the damage had been done. Okay. Uh, and then the, the smelter itself closed in 1981. So the other thing that you guys touch on in your show, and, and I know a lot of people outside the Silver Valley are interested in, is Lake Coeur d'Alene. You know, for many of us, you know, that lake and that community is North Idaho, or is often the North Idaho experience people, people have. And there's, a, I guess, the issue with Coeur d'Alene, Lake Coeur d'Alene now is, is partly water quality, but it's also the sediments at the bottom of the lake and the heavy metals there, right? And so what... What do you see happening with that? Are we stuck with that forever? Or um, is there a viable solution? Or is it something we have to wait for until technology gets better? Yeah, like like I mentioned, for a long time, tailings and discharge were just pumped out into the river and washed downstream through the Coeur d'Alene River into uh, where the, the river, it, it flows through what's called the Chain Lakes and then enters Lake Coeur d'Alene at Harrison. Um, and so a lot of the dirt and sediments in the bottom of the lake are filled with lead and silver and all the, all the things that were being mined for plus some. And so as the cleanup effort has gone on, it's, it's really interesting where the Coeur d'Alene river used to be a really big metals loader into the lake. And so, um, those things like lead get bound to the dirt and sediments and fall to the bottom, whereas Things like zinc actually float and are dissolved in the water. And zinc is a uh, aquatic life inhibitor. So it was so the 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 concern was that it was affecting like fish and plants and right. aquatic life, even if it wasn't at the point where it was affecting human health. Um, and so now with the success of uh, improving the quality of the river, you know, they've they've dramatically lowered how much comes into the South Fork and into the lake. And so the water quality is improving. That has the ironic effect of now the water and quality is improved. And so algae can grow like it would in any other lake. You know, ev every lake across the country is having issues with algae blooms, it seems like. Right. But in Lake Coeur d'Alene, if you get a particularly big one and it dies off, it can consume the oxygen. And the chemistry works out to where the lead itself would be released from the dirt and come up into the water column and essentially turn this giant, beautiful lake that many people call the gem of North Idaho into a big, sludgy, soupy tragedy. <laughs> so what's the solution? 
Um, the solution is to uh, prevent phosphorus from washing into the lake, fertilizers, you know, pressures from development, the all the sort of things you would do to prevent algae blooms in any other lake. Mm. It's just extra important to prevent them in Lake Coeur d'Alene. Wow. And so that's what, you know, my package talked about. The state has actually started putting some grants out to local projects to work on. Um, they've been improving like the stormwater systems and um, wastewater treatment in cities like Coeur d'Alene and up in the Silver Valley and working on stream bank stabilization, just putting money on the ground to, you know, keep working on improving the water quality. Mm. And then, you know, long term, DEQ's vision is eventually we'll get enough of the upper basin clean and the Silver Valley clean and the lower basin clean. You know, the way that all the lead got into the lake was by washing downstream. Eventually, in the like 100 year to 150 year to 200 year time span, enough clean stuff will wash down the river that it'll bury the dirty stuff unless we have some sort of moonshot dredging genius who's going to figure out where to put 80 to 100 million tons of lead-filled sludge at the bottom. I shouldn't say sludge, sediment, excuse me. Right. Interesting. It's fascinating. You know, the one thing that I didn't mention that I, well, you mentioned the Outdoor Idaho episode on the Silver Valley Rising, and it turns out that uh, Pat Metzler, the editor who worked on this show with me, has worked on past shows about the Silver Valley. And so his contributions to understanding that history and the culture and just the resources Idaho Public TV has in-house to tell that story was super helpful. Um, he filmed a lot of that uh, work in the Silver Valley in, in the 90s and, and, and earlier, and he was really in command of all that information. So he was a super huge contribution to, uh, to our coverage of, of the Silver Valley and to this show. And I guess the last thing I wanted to mention, Logan, is we got a chance to twice go down in the Sunshine Mine itself, uh, two different tours. And uh, those folks were very accommodating, very generous and very helpful. It really made the difference in seeing what it was like to be down in a mine, what it's like to go up and down on those hoists, to be on the, the 3100 level uh, where so many miners ended up dying in that disaster uh, was a real experience. And uh, I had not been down in a mine before, and uh, Aaron Koontz and I uh, got to go down twice to film for the show, and, and that, was a, that was a really great educational experience. That's very cool. Yeah, Morgan and I only got to go to the mouth of the Bunker Hill mine. We didn't go down in it. I'm jealous. <laughs> well, I recommend it. <laughs> Echoing what you said, I want to give Pat Metzler a huge shout out. He helped me find a lot of footage that was in in my story. And I want to shout out Morgan McCollum, our Idaho Reports editor, too. He put in hours and hours of work putting all my crazy thoughts together into a package that made sense. So I appreciate him. Two great guys. And most people don't realize how important the editors are to making our work actually work. Absolutely. We just have a couple minutes left here, but I do want to acknowledge that mining isn't relegated to the past for Idaho or for the Silver Valley. There are companies working today to get the Sunshine Mine back up and running, the Bunker Hill Mine back up and running. You talk to some of those folks. How do you think it's going to be different this time? I talked only to the Sunshine Mine folks, and that's really, uh, if I have any expertise at all, that's what, what it is. And um, 
they they think there are resources uh, remaining in the Silver Valley and what in what one of our one of the Sunshine Mine managers called the Silver Belt uh, that they think there's enough silver there to to be as productive as it was in the past and uh, they are exploring right now they're they're maintaining that mine um, as it is and so like we say in the show it's sort of like a sort of like a spider trapped in amber you could still go experience the sunshine mine largely as it was in 1972 and then when it closed again in the early 2000s and they've done a beautiful job of maintaining 100 plus year old hoisting and other equipment so they can continue to get it get in and around that mine but i think their plans are to discover enough uh uh, uh plenty of, uh, enough resources that they can rebuild those hoists maybe build some new uh mine shafts and and return mining to to the sunshine uh, with an employment of 300 or 350 miners that's maybe a third of what uh, they used to used to take but i think technology is different today obviously safety requirements are different environmental requirements are different uh, and everything everything i could observe and everything i learned is that the uh, new managers of those mines are cognizant not just of of the new laws and the new requirements but also the legacy um, and the experience of the sunshine and they feel a big responsibility to not repeat the mistakes of the past yeah that's definitely an impression i got as well i didn't speak directly with the new bunker hill owners but i spoke with deq staff who work with them and with um the friends of the river coalition folks i i talked to had good things to say about the new bunker hill owners um i do want to mention the water treatment plant that's featured in my story was built by the original company and then taken over by epa when uh when the mines closed and then epa upgraded the plant and just turned over operation of it to the state and to deq in the last year um and the bunker hill corporation which is the new owner actually pays the bulk of the costs to keep that water treatment plant up and running because it's treating the you know the runoff from their mine and so something that andy helke with deq told me is that if there wasn't a private company owning that mine and chipping into the the treatment efforts the state and the taxpayers would have to pick up that entire millions of dollars tab every year is that company mandated to do that or is it just a uh, good business um that i don't recall i i want to say they just want to be good partners in the area and um part of the reason that that mine runoff has to be treated is because it's very very acidic and picks up a lot of the heavy metals in there um Unlike Sunshine, which is a silver mine, Bunker Hill was a primarily a, a zinc and lead mine. And so it there's a, a creek fork that runs into the mine and over some pyrite formations gets super acidic and dissolves a bunch of metals. Um, and the new company actually has a, their hope is to be able to go in and cover up the pyrite and chemically treat everything and kind of seal off that shaft so that hopefully that's not an issue in the future. So I know we're running out of time, but you know, the talking about water and mines reminded me of what I learned about the sunshine mine, which is right now about not quite the lower half of the mine is flooded. And when they don't run, so they have to run pumps to keep it at that level, but they keep it about that level because there's just natural water in those mountains and in the, in that earth there. Yeah. Groundwater. And leaving that water there, 
keeps everything in place. It preserves those old timbers. Uh, it's cold. It's still, and so letting flooding the lower half of that mine is actually a a management tool that they use. And when they get ready to mine, they can they can get their pumps running. They can lower those water levels. But you don't really think about mines as being giant swimming pools. But that's essentially what they are. It's a fascinating industry. It's fascinating. I guess one last point I would make, Logan, is that if anybody's really interested in understanding the the Sunshine Mine disaster, is to go to the memorial service that the community holds every year on May second at the Sunshine Mine Memorial, right there along Highway 90. It's such a powerful, profound experience.、Um, you really see, in you know, the course of an hour or 90 minutes, how much of an impact this、uh, event had on that community. And the number of people and survivors and and miners who still come and still participate is a really powerful experience. It's a fascinating area with、uh, a lot of fascinating folks, and you know, you and I are both very grateful to the people up there who who took the time to speak with us. You bet. All right, Bill Manny, executive producer, with us here at Idaho Public Television. Thanks so much for talking with us this week. You're welcome. Talk to you later. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho, by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Marcia Franklin, the producer and host of Dialogue. For more than 25 years, we've been bringing you conversations that matter. More than 150 of those conversations are with writers, and now you can take them with you wherever you go, while you're walking, around the house, or in the car. Just search for Dialogue with Marcia Franklin on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms, and remember to subscribe so that new shows download automatically. Enjoy.